Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the First Word Podcast. My name is Alex, and my co-host Mike is not with us this week, but instead we have uh, one of my friends and fellow movie geeks, Anton Volkov, joining us from London. Hello, hello. So, hey, Anton, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Good. Um, well, extremely tired, because uh, the, this episode we're recording is uh, a Venice Film Festival episode, special edition, because basically I'm still at Venice, in uh, in Venice, at the Venice Film Festival on day seven. I don't even know where it is. I've seen 18 films so far. And Damn. Anton... <laughs> Yeah, Anton, you came down on the first two days of the festival to see some films. So yes. um, we wanted to connect and chat about uh, what you've seen, Anton, what I've seen, and just sort of talk about the Venice Film Festival. So uh, that's what this episode is about. So thank you for listening and uh, chiming in. So, okay, Anton, let's get into it. I want to jump in. You've never been to Venice at all or anything, and this was your first time coming to the festival, right? Yes, it was, both to the city and to the fest. Great. Um and I was here, this is my second year, and the festival is uh, one of the oldest festivals, film festivals in the entire world. I think it's the older oldest. than... oldest. Yeah, the, yeah. Older than Cannes by a couple of years. Um, so they have a very iconic history here, and it's not as crazy as Cannes. It's a little bit more mellow because there's a lot of other film festivals going on. There's the Telluride Film Festival in Colorado, and there's the Toronto Film Festival starting in a few days. So there's a lot going on, and the Venice Film Festival is sort of the premier fall European festival. And there's always a lot of major premieres here, and there's always a lot going on um, in terms of, uh, I hate to drop the Oscar word already so soon, but in terms <laughs> of like Oscar buzz and, you know. The, the, That's where it starts. Yeah, this is where it yeah, all begins. Yeah, this is where it starts. Um, and so last year, uh, not last year, but two years ago, I guess, La La Land premiered here. And so they followed up this year, and I know we can get into this because I know this is why you came to Venice, but they followed up this year and premiered yes. Damien Chazelle's first man, his latest film since winning Best Director Oscar, uh, his latest film as the opening night film of the Venice Film Festival. And La La Land was also opening night, just to note, yeah. as well, two um, years ago. So tell me, what this was your whole thing, right? You wanted to come to Venice just for first man. That was, well, that was the idea, really, because, okay, I have, I've never been to Venice before, and um, I kept thinking, yeah, given how much I was looking forward to First Man, I thought, you know, why not come down for a couple of days, explore the city, and, and actually, you know, see the films, especially after I found out how open they are to the public in terms of tickets. Because, for example, you know, take London Film Festival that's got tickets going on sale later this week. Even when you get that special membership thing for the BFI, which is, I think, £30 a year, and you get priority access to the tickets, they, to most of the big films, what's going to be premiere, what's going to be screening there for the first time in the UK, Suspiria, A Private War, Battle of the Buster Scruggs, Roma, right, they all go in seconds, and by the time the public tickets go on sale, like, there's virtually nothing, and I think the same could be said for Toronto for the public tickets it's as crazy well with venice firstly it's cheap in terms of the tickets i mean we're talking uh for another 26 discount 12 13 euros that's for wow. uh, firstly and, and and second that's for and that's not only for you know single screening like you know say first man but also when you have a double bill so the following night the second night i saw roma and the favorite yeah same price right 13 pounds 13 euros for two of the biggest films of the year. That's a bargain, really. That's crazy. And, you, and you're and you basically saying, like, it wasn't hard to get them, right? And did you... No, and, it, 
my other question is was it reserved seating seat? yes yes it was reserved seating because um basically actually here's the funny thing the way that venice does the ticketing from what i discovered is that instead of having all the sections going on sale of the uh Palo biennale that's basically the big pop-up theater that seats i think like 2000 that's just slightly out of the security controlled festival area so it's like a five-minute walk from the um, Palazzo del Cinema. Yeah. Uh, basically, what they do is they release a few sections at a time. So therefore, the first ones that went on sale as soon as the tickets did go on sale was the section that I was in, which was basically kind of the most middle you can get, but it's a bit further back. And then the very front. And then as the days and weeks went by, they opened up a few more of the different sections. So therefore, you know, you could literally, I was checking a few days before, I think the weekend before the film fest, there was still at least 30 tickets available for First Man. And there were still tickets available for Roma and The Favourite, you know, even a day before the festival. So for the public screenings, it's amazing because, okay, you don't necessarily have to, you know, battle for the same seats in the big Palazzo Sala Grande. While sure, you know, tickets for that are available to the public, apart from, you know, opening opening night. Because that's invite only for the big Sala Grande screening with the cast. But for example, earlier on the second day, I saw The Mountain with Jeff Goldblum and the whole cast from that was there. Jeff Goldblum, Hannah Gross, uh, Ty Sheridan, they were all there. So it's, uh, like I said, it's incredibly open, incredibly democratic in terms of ticket access. Yeah, and that's great. I think that's, I mean, aside from the fact that you have to fly to Venice and, you know, get somewhere to stay here. And the other the other really interesting thing that I learned when I first came here about the Venice Film Festival is it's actually on a whole separate island. It's uh, it's the Lido, which if you've been to Venice, you probably know what it is. It's this um, very long, skinny island that's about a 20-minute boat ride from the main Venice town as we know it w- with all the canals. Um, and it's easy to get a boat. There's a lot of shuttle boats that go there, and there's a couple they add just for the festival. Um, but it's a much quieter place. It's not as overrun with tourists. And, um, you know, most festivals are this way, but Venice especially is all about the red carpet, too. So I think a lot of the, like, local Italian people who are here who want to, you know, go stop by the festival, I think they go for the carpet, you know, to scream at the celebrities. And then, you know, the the real movie geeks like you are the ones who actually buy the ticket to go see the film. I mean, I, mean, I tried. Here's the thing, right? For First Man, I actually tried hanging out at the red carpet. You probably know this, but for those who don't know, I sometimes make fan posters mm-hmm. uh, and that I share on Twitter and social media. I make fan trends as well, as well. But basically something that I've been doing with the posters that I've been making for films that I'm really looking forward to is trying, you know, when they... When the cast and crew come down to London for the premiere, right? Go to the red carpet and get them signed. I still have... A few interstellar posters that I made that Chris, uh, Chris Nolan, Emma Thomas, and the whole cast of that signed a couple of years ago. There was a Dunkirk poster that we actually have at UCL uh, uh, at the Film Society there, where the whole cast signed that. And I was hoping to get the stuff that I made for First Man signed by Chazelle and the cast, but it got so crazy. And I was concerned about the start time of the screening because the doors to the public screening closed 10 minutes before the start time. So 10 to seven and the cast only arrived at quarter two. So I decided to leave Van anyway. And then later I found out that, you know, Ryan and Damien didn't even sign anything for hardly anyone because security were just pulling them away for interviews and to get inside the theater. Yeah. 
That's a bit unfortunate. I was hoping you would have been able to like pull off everything, like get them to sign something and go see the films. Maybe they come to London. I, I, I'm hearing rumors they might at the end of September, but I don't know for sure at the moment. Yeah, and the last thing I want to mention before we get into the, the film specifically is that I'm, I assume it's the same for you, but every screening I've ever been to in Venice is like perfectly projected. The audio is loud and everything is great. Like it's actually, and also weirdly, more than other film festivals, everything has started on time perfectly. I, and I, I'm going to most of the screenings, but it's like, it's actually this relief that I don't ever have to worry about projection issues or sound issues or anything. Like everything has been perfect, which is a, a great thing because some festivals, you honestly never know. You don't know if anything's going to be wrong or not. They try to care, but like I've been happily satisfied consistently on a hundred percent basis with Venice. Yeah, the, the the quality has been really great. I mean, granted, for both nights, I've been sitting probably a bit too far to kind of fully appreciate if you know they did use four K or whatever. I'm just so used to the sort of IMAX field of view sitting yeah. fairly close to the screen to fully appreciate it. I will say I had one quibble though. And that's when I saw Roma, because okay. I was sitting too far, a bit too far. I had to actually strain my eyes a bit to try and read the subtitles, because I don't know if it was the same for you. I assume you saw it at the press screening, right, Roma? Yeah, I did. Yeah, there's, because there's the main screen, and then there's that little tiny strip of screen just below it, yeah. and that's where you had the English subtitles. Right. And while the Italian subtitles were projected on the main image. And basically in the Palo Biennale, that little strip of screen, firstly the text, the actual subtitle text was quite a bit smaller than the Italian one and less brightly projected. So it (laughs) took quite some effort to try and follow everything, but ultimately it was fine. That was my only, that's my only quibble with uh, presentation quality of Venice. I've never actually been to that cinema here, so I don't know the size of the screen. But, like, I always, I, like, I'm one of those people who, like, as soon as I get inside the cinema, and I'm free CD. So, like, as soon as I get inside, I'm looking at the screen. I'm, like, judging distances to be, like, is this going to be good? Like, and if it's something where I know visually it will be amazing, I always try to sit a little bit closer. Because if I know it's going to be cleanly projected, I'm, like, I will take the slightly bigger screen. Um, no, the screen at the Palo Biennale is huge. The question is where to sit. And that's why, you know, what Venice does with ticketing and only releasing a few sections at a time is a problem. Because, okay, if you go in there first and grab the seats that I grab, you know, when you've got something like Roman, you're sitting too far away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. Well, um, this makes me... Okay, so I want to discuss First Man last because that's the one we're going to get really into. <laughs> but, um, so you said... The first man, you saw The Mountain, you saw Roma, and you saw The Favorite, right? Did you see any others, or was it those four? No, they were just those four. Okay, cool. And I've seen other ones. I've seen um, A Star is Born, which I liked, but I didn't love. It's really cheesy. I saw uh, Peter Lou, the Mike Lee film, which I hated. It's very boring. I saw the Coen Brothers film, The Battle of Buster Scruggs, which I loved. Um, I saw Suspiria, which we can talk about a little bit more in the end. Um, in, in a bunch of other random stuff that's been showing. Um, but with you, Anton, I really wanted to talk about the ones you've seen and just have a little bit of discussion about them. So before we get to First Man, um, I want to hear you, Roma, you, you've been talking about it, and I really want to hear your take on it. This is Alfonso Cuaron's latest film. He's a, he's a Mexican filmmaker who's been making you know a lot of English language, I don't want to say Hollywood stuff, but uh, bigger features between Children of Men. He did one Harry Potter movie, um, Itumama Tambien, and Gravity. And this is him 
going back to his you know real mexican roots to tell a story that is set uh i think it's in the 1970s in mexico city based on his own memories of his childhood and, and his life growing up in what is actually turns out to be a very um feminist story so the story focuses on um the, the main focus the main character is uh, um, uh, a young mexican i don't know if she's young but a mexican woman who is uh, basically, one of the maids, one of the cleaners and, and housemaids who works for this wealthy Mexican family. Um, and so you see not only the mother dealing with the kids, but also this this the main woman and their experiences uh, as things happen around. And it's beautifully shot black and white and um, full on. Like the first thing I, I was in love with in terms of the filmmaking is just how detailed and gorgeous the scenes are. So Alfonso Cuaron did his own cinematography on this, which is different than him working with uh, Emmanuel Lubezki previously. And so there aren't these like clean, you know, 20 minute long he's done for his previous movies, but there are uh, his set design and his actual like uh, presentation of what's happening in each scene is so beautifully detailed. It's the kind of thing that you do need to close to the screen to just take in everything that's happening in the scenes and just appreciate it and just get lost in it. Because while there is a narrative focus with the main woman, there's so much going on in the background. There's so much going on in every scene. It's more than that. And that's what I really admire the most about this film is how much it's not just one character you're caring about. It's just all of what's happening here. Yeah, it's the scale of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely the scale because... And that's the thing that I really love about Roma is that Okay, you're focusing on this very intimate personal story, which in the hands of a different director would have been more, uh, well, uh, how else could you say, a bit more, you know, classic, more, you know, just classically dramatic, a bit Oscar baity, if that makes sense. Kind of, okay, a different approach to the storytelling. <laughs> the way, yeah, the, the, normally, you know, with a story like this, you get a very different approach to the storytelling, but with Roma, and that's the great thing. Quaron tries to make it as actually immersive as possible and try to actually put you there. And, you know, when you try and... When you have a story like this and then you somehow think, oh, but what is it? What, but what if it wasn't virtual reality? Like, you think that, oh, maybe it's not that big a deal. But then the way Quaron does it, the way that Quaron does highlight other aspects, firstly, geographically, of all the different locations, so that's the first thing. And secondly the actual or uh, what happens what happened during this historical period the demonstrations the whole corpus christi massacre that's shown later on in the film when you have those intertwined so as nicely as guaron does here and then when you add the cinematography and most importantly the sound if there's one thing to say about roma it needs big sound more than it does the big screen that's just my personal opinion because the sound mixing is just beautifully done. I don't think I I think it's the the most recent film I've seen with that sort of mix was actually Mother last year. Yeah, yeah. Aronofsky oh, yeah. played in a very similar way with purposely directional sound. So like for the, just just to kind of explain in in words. So for example, when you have a shot where where, okay, when there's someone talking off screen, you don't have the sound coming out just, you know, in, in the middle like you normally would. It would actually come from behind you. And then try and take that every sound that is shown there is placed almost kind of perfectly t to give you that sense of space, even when you've got 
a huge screen such as the Palo Biennale, you can definitely feel, you know, cars going by right behind you. If there are people cheering from the left-hand side and then, and then moving right around the back, you actually feel that happening. And that's feeling still remains in such a huge space that you've got. Yeah. So it's just a testament of how much work Quaron and the sound editors really did here. And of course, the other thing about the cinematography, just... I have to mention this. There's been too much talk that this was shot on 70mm. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was shot digital. Alexa 65, but it still looked gorgeous. Yeah. It looked gorgeous. Uh, people have been talking a lot about HDR, and I'm looking forward to seeing that in HDR whenever it's available, because yeah. in the UK, I don't think we do have any laser HDR venues apart from IMAX. The Odeon Leicester Square, kind of the... Hey, if you be, uh, Alex, you've probably been to LFF, you probably know that venue, yeah, that Big Odeon. It's currently under refurbishment, and okay. uh, it was going to be opened in time for LFF, but it's going to be, I'm hearing, like, November time, but basically they're using the IMAX at Leicester Square instead. But that Odeon, the rumour is they're going to put in Dolby Cinema. It's going to be the first venue in the UK to have Dolby Cinema, which is their la laser HDR with Dolby Atmos. Yeah. And so to see, and I think that's the way they might be showing off uh, Roma at TIFF at Toronto. Since so what you're saying is so true and so important for this film, it's actually, it makes me feel a little ashamed that uh, it's being released so easily on Netflix. Like they're also putting it out in theaters, but, but I think most people are going to see it through Netflix. And it's, it's like the one of the kind of films that you're like, even though it's easily available on Netflix, I wish people would actually go to the cinema to see it and to appreciate everything about the technical aspects of it in a cinema you know like even if you have the most beautiful home theater setup which i know of a few friends who do there's just something about that it needs to be experienced on the big screen like i said i mean i agree with you like i like i said it does need big sound more so like if you've got an amazing sound system at home i think it will do the film justice in any case but yeah about the big screen still it's great that netflix are now trying to push theatrical releases and actually get serious about it there have been rumors after the venice premiere that they might give roma and you know buster scruggs uh exclusive one week runs before they go out on netflix and I think something important to also mention with Roma and the whole deal with Netflix there is that people are saying like, oh, you know, I wish it had gone to a traditional distributor. But then the problem with Roma, which I think a lot of people in the initial reports of it going to Netflix highlighted, for all intents and purposes, as amazing as the film is, it's still, if you just think of it from a purely business point of view, it's a foreign language film. No yeah. matter the fact that you've got Quaron on board and it's probably one of the most beautifully done films of the year that deserves the big screen, it's still a foreign language film and I don't think uh, it would have gotten any uh, a theatrical run, a global, most importantly, theatrical run from a traditional for, uh, art house distributor any bigger or, most importantly, if that makes sense, at the same time as other countries, that Netflix would at least, it seems, attempt to give. Because yeah. take, uh, I don't know if you saw it, can Cold War, Pavel Pavlikovsky's new film. Yeah, I did, I did, yeah. Yeah, I saw it a preview a few weeks ago, and it's uh, it's also amazing. Also, for those who don't know, also shot black and white, interestingly enough. But yeah, yeah. it's uh, such a great film. came out this week in the UK uh, on... Uh, 
both at cinemas as well as on demand. Uh, Curzon, the distributor, also have a really great cinema chain here. They have their own kind of on-demand service, so they have the film there. While in America, Amazon have it on release all the way in December, and the North American premiere is in Toronto. So you can see that sort of gap. So, so you know, Roma would have had the same had it been picked or something similar had it been picked up by by someone you know like magnolia again looking back i'm thinking of the handmaiden the gap between when that came out and was released in america and here and then when it came out on blu-ray whatever well here it's out december well at least planned to be out december and whatever theatrical run different countries it may have as limited as it is it's going to be more or less the same time, with the exception of Mexico, of course, which is actually screening it in one theatre this week, just so it can qualify for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. To me, that's actually, the, the, the without getting too much into a discussion about Netflix and, and the positives and negatives, one of the things that I actually do appreciate about them is the fact that they do put some support behind these kind of films. Like, they, they let Quran make this and make something so personal, but they're also supporting it, at least... You know, and I, I don't know about marketing because that's a debate we can get into another time. But just I saw in the middle of one of the main squares in Venice proper near the festival, but in the main tourist area of Venice, I saw a huge billboard for Roma. And I'm like, yeah, I saw the photo. I'm actually supporting it, it. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't there when I was walking around the area the day before I left. But <laughs> it's great that they're actually so doing this. Yeah, so that's that's the good thing is like you know this is a film that probably would have if it would have gone through a conventional route of playing at the festival without any distribution you know would have struggled to find someone and maybe picked up a small distributor and then you know, they would have put it out small and done this thing. But at least this is behind it, and at least if you can't go to the cinemas to see it, at least you can see it on Netflix easily, and that's great for a film that is so deeply personal, I think, for and deeply meaningful in a in a way that is like. Not just cinematically and technically, but from a from um, a, a storytelling and humanistic point, from from what you see in it and what it shows. Yeah, I I actually caught up a bit on the Quaron films that I haven't seen, kind of in the days leading up to my trip. So I saw Gravity again. I've got Blu-ray 3D at home of that. I saw Itumama Tambien as well, a little princess, and you know Roma is kind of going back to his roots. That, you know, going back to the sort of stuff that he had in Itumama Tambien, but yet applying all the technical expertise and knowledge that he has gained throughout films like Gravity, films like Children of Men. Going yeah. back towards a more personal, down-to-earth story, but then presenting it in, in such an immersive way. Yeah. That's and kind of that great... It's that great kind of combination of both these things that makes Roma the film that it is i think yeah i agree and i would say if you're if you are a quran fan you need to see it because i'm pretty sure he he references at some point in the film the basically like the origin and inspiration for every other film he's made like there's a gravity moment that's extremely obvious and then there's also the um someone mentioned this to me and it made sense is that the 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 scenes you were talking about with the massacre were very Children of Men-esque in the way that it kind of like, you know, so there's all these little things where you're basically like, oh, this explains his entire career, you know, everything in his life. And and I wrote a tweet where I said, Quran gives us his soul. And that this is such a, a film where he really gives us so much of him. And then all of his movies have been parts of him. But this is like everything he's ever done has led to this moment. And if you're a fan of his other films, you have to see it for that sake, to almost understand him more as a filmmaker. That's 
if you're if you're you know on the on the fence about it, just watch it for that reason. Just just get lost in in learning about why Quran is such a brilliant you know storyteller. Indeed, and also just so, sorry to kind of circle back a bit towards Netflix. Yeah. Something that a really nice touch that I found as soon as the film started, and it's a bit geeky to mention this, but their new logo. Oh I mean, yeah, it's you can cool. yeah, tell. Yeah. You can tell that they're being serious about film now. <laughs> Instead of the whole Frank Underwood dadum, then otherwise no, uh, uh, otherwise they're just trying to go all out again. They're trying to push, push these films that are coming out on all these festivals again. This Buster Scruggs, twenty second, twenty uh, second July, Greengrass's new film, uh, Outlaw King, trying to have a, have them have a much higher profile for them and try because again they're trying they're playing the Oscar game and they have a natural yeah. disadvantage because of the fact that they're straight to screaming and they're very unlike Amazon who, who basically followed the traditional model down to a T. It's not like their prime members get the films out before they're out on conventional digital Blu-ray. No they don't. Netflix it's always about their members first so therefore them trying to play that game and trying to be more serious and I think it's because of their new leadership as well they had a new head of film appointed very recently Ah, it's great that they're finally doing this and something I was speaking to others about uh, just to briefly touch on marketing very briefly is that here in London aside from Mute and the Cloverfield Paradox I have never seen a single ad for a Netflix film outdoors every well, the, single like even every, banners you mean nothing yeah 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 even banners nothing it's always their tv shows always mm. the likes of house of cards the defenders the crown just recently the innocence they've even been doing newspaper ads but for their films absolutely nothing i mean it was all just a case of okay just feeding the algorithm and you know something that was brought up in recent interviews with the producers of Firstly Crazy Rich Asians, which I saw yes, which I got to see yesterday because they finally did a previous screening here. Great film, and also um, what was the other film? A film I was thinking of. Yeah, Star is Born. The big problem with Netflix is that a Netflix release never manages to get the same sort of cultural and press zeitgeist and hype that a traditional theatrical release does, and that is exactly why. Crazy Rich Asians passed on a huge deal with Netflix to produce, you know, the whole book trilogy. Uh, they okay. instead went to Warner Brothers because of the fact that they wanted a theatrical release. They wanted it to have this big conversation because were we talking about Crazy Rich Asians to the extent that we are in terms of the general film community? If it mm-hmm. did go out by Netflix, no, nowhere near. So hopefully with what they're doing with their festival films and their awards hopeful films, that's kind of a change for the better in terms of how Netflix treat their films. Hopefully it'll be more in line to how they treat their series because their series, every time when you've got something like The Crown or Stranger Things come out, we always talk about it. It's a zeitgeist moment. Their films in general, not so much. I want to get into this, but I want to save it for another podcast because I, I could. I feel like yeah. we could talk two hours about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. It's, <laughs> it's an interesting thing because it's like you know. Yeah, I'll I'll save it for another. I, I understand your point, and I mean that's why it's interesting that it's like they spent the money to have a billboard in in Venice, but in they Rome. don't spend the money. It's, sorry, in Venice, yeah, else. for Rome. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, the next one I want to talk about is the favorite, um, which is the new Yorgos Lanthimos film. And and for those who don't know, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos is a Greek filmmaker who was making some really weird, funky Greek films for a while. And finally, 
um, broke out into English language films with uh, The Lobster. Uh, and then he followed that up with film, I think it was last year, The, the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yeah, last year. Ago. I'm surprised he managed to get a new film out that quick, literally ready for the same festival run. <laughs> yeah, but I think, he's, I think he's the kind of guy who's just like constantly working on something. And as soon as he finishes something, he's got you know, his sights on something else. And, and he's, he's such a, a profile filmmaker now within the industry that, that it's like everyone wants to work with him. And, and he's so quirky. Um, and so to talk about the favorite, the favorite is basically like, uh, I think it's set in 17th century England and it's another English language film. And it's basically about, um, this, this weird frail queen played by Olivia Coleman. Um, and she's basically the, the title is reference to the concept that she has her associate played by Rachel Weiss and she's like her, you know, uh, right hand uh, woman, so to say, and help with all these things. But then suddenly Emma Stone is this kind of like servant who appears out of nowhere and sort of works her way up the chain to be her favorite. And I would say out of everything I've seen from Yorgos Lathimos, this is his most conventional. It's not as weird, wacky. It's wacky, but it's not, you know, as weird as like the lobster where the dialogue is wacky. This is like, this is like fun, playful. Wacky. And my first comment on it when I saw it was that, um, it's more uh, uh, like approachable and, and, and less meaningful, more entertainment than it is like a deep thing from what I've seen in his past work, like the lobster being a, a romantic um, parable and, and uh, killing of a sacred deer being a, a whole deep thing about like death and, and greed and things like that. This is much more about um, just like having fun and playing with these characters and like letting them go crazy, and and they you know they mess around in the in the 17th century England you know. Queen. And he's literally, and here's the thing about this film, uh, is that he's literally playing with you know real life events, which I thought was interesting because the whole thing with you know, Queen Anne and Lady Marlborough, that's that's all real. There's. Um, Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 it's all real. It's quite funny. I was visiting um, Blenheim Palace uh, just outside London recently. If, if In the film world, I mean, what has been used as location for? It was used as a location for Inspector, for the big uh, kind of uh, big evil organization meeting in Rome. It was also used in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation in uh, one of the sequences there. But basically, the story behind that palace is that Queen Anne gifted it to the Marlborough family. So that's Lord Marlborough, who's played by Mark Gattis, who's one of the co-writers of the Sherlock series, and obviously Lady Marlborough, that's Rachel Weiss's character, Sarah yeah. Churchill. And so that's all real real life. So Lanthimos is playing with these kind of real events in this really wacky and interesting way and playing up off the rumours that, you know, Lady Marlborough and Queen Anne were in love. And so, I mean, yeah. we don't know if there's any historical evidence to that. Apparently, there have been a few rumbles, but then Lanthimos just, okay, takes this and then just has it writ large on the big screen and yeah. also without losing his kind of quirky, idiosyncratic style. Yeah. And he's got, he's got like these like crazy cool fisheye shots in it and um, so much. Like, one of the actually things referencing what you're saying about how the, the, the realism to it is I actually thought to myself, like, I bet a lot of this wackiness that we think is just comedic moments actually really happened at that time. Like there's like duck races. And yeah, no, like duck some, racing is real. Yeah, and and there's also these like moments where like the royalty just like kicks people down hills, whatever they whatever they want. And you watch it in the context of the movie, and you're like, oh, this is funny comedy, ha ha. But then I'm like, 
this probably really happened. They can get away with that stuff. They can do this stuff. And that's actually what's kind of cool about it is that this is just like, it's so absurd, but also like potentially so real beyond just the historical context of it. Like the actual, like, I bet this stuff really happened. So now we're going to play with it in this, in this fun way that makes for great modern day entertainment in terms of a cinema experience. And it's, it's, it's great. I had such a great time with it, even though it's not as, you know, deep to uh, its meaning, I still enjoyed it. Like, I still just, I don't know my favorite Lanthimos film, but I had such a great time with it. And Emma Stone, I thought was the best in terms of... Yeah, she's um, so good in this. Yeah, I don't want to give away what happens to her, but just like the way her character evolves, you realize that her performance is not just the surface, there's layers to it that's go- of what's going on. And of course, uh, Rachel Weisz and um, Olivia Coleman are also awesome in terms of their roles. Like they're, they're, everyone here, those three are just giving top-notch performances that make it work so well. And also, I think worth mentioning, it's the first, I think it's Lanthimos' first film which wasn't written by him. Mm. Do you know? Now I'm gonna find out who wrote it. Because <laughs> it... I, I think it might be. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it might be an Australian, um, a, a pair of Australian writers, or at least uh, either yeah. British or Australian writers who wrote this and then pushed it to Fox Searchlight and Lanthimos. So that's probably where some of the fact that okay, it's not quite like his previous films are a bit more mainstream comes from the fact that okay, he didn't write it himself. And that but, makes sense. But it's no... still you still feel that it's a Lanthimos film. Obviously, yeah, the director really puts his stamp on them both visually and in terms of dialogue. And again, going back to the performances, yeah, the way that Weiss and Coleman, sorry, Weiss and Stone play off each other, and also Weiss and Coleman, is it's just electrifying to watch, I thought. I yeah. think, you know, every time they share the screen, then well, whatever be it insults, barbs, or talking sweet nothings at each other and stuff like that, it's <laughs> always just so delightful to watch. Yeah. Even when they're hurling C-bombs at each other like crazy. I mean, that film must be rated 18 here for that. <laughs> yeah, that's what's crazy. But like, uh, it, it, it's like, this is such a bad cuss word nowadays. But I'm like, I'm sure it just was fine back then. That's why they used it so plentifully. <laughs> and it's, it's, oh, man, it's such a good time. I hope people see it for that reason. Like, just go have a great time and, and watch them be weird. Um, and I, I think from knowing that this is a Fox Searchlight production, I feel like they we're a little bit more focused on making it that way. Like I know that Searchlight probably, I'm not saying they, you know, revised it, but that they, um, they, they're, they're familiar with Lanthimos and I know that they like to choose directors because of the quality of their work, but then probably help to make it in something into something that's a little bit more accessible on a larger scale than his more really weird stuff. Um, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Cause I know I never, I was, I, I'm kind of unsure with this one what people are going to make and I was even unsure going in if I was going to enjoy it so I'm I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it I'm glad to hear that most people I know who saw it had a good time with it and I'm sure there's some criticism about it out there but uh, I had a blast with it yes yes same here even now I was <laughs> trying to stay up because again it was following two previous films and it was so uh, and it was so late but the fact that it was as enjoyable as it was that kind of uh, got, got me, got, got, uh, kept me awake in that sense. I feel terrible <laughs> for saying this, but but it was still great. I still had such 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 a good time with it. I'm debating whether to see that again at LFF, yeah. and and same goes for Roma. I'm try, I'm debating whether to see that again. Well, I guess it depends on when the press and industry screening schedule comes out. Whether there are any cashes because the advantage of okay seeing this Roma in the favorite 
in Venice means that, okay, I don't have to worry about trying to catch those as well in case there's a clash with whatever else there is. I understand. And you know, you know, sleeping is a, a common thing in festivals, <laughs> especially for someone like me who's here every day. Like I wake up at 6 a.m. every day and go to four films and it's exhausting. And, you know, I'm awake and excited for the ones I'm really excited about. But then you see something like Peterloo, which was just massively boring. And I'm or like, the I'm mountain. Yeah. OK, so let's talk about the mountain. The mountain, the mountain people, people next to me at Sala Grande were asleep. <laughs> I'm not surprised. You know, and look, um, Okay, because I want to talk about this because I only have so much to say about it, and I just didn't care for it too much. The Mountain is the latest film from uh, a guy named Rick Albertson, who, uh, he's kind of a controversial filmmaker. He's an American filmmaker, but he's kind of controversial because his first, not his first two, but his other two films, The Comedy and Entertainment, I think they both played at Sundance first. And they're, they were, I haven't seen so I can only say what I heard, is I heard that they're like extremely off-putting, but really comedic in like a dark, twisted way. And some people love that kind of comedy some people don't so when i was going into the mountain i was like oh i you know i haven't seen him in what is i don't know if i'm gonna like this film the mountain is actually not really a comedy it's sort of from what i've heard a departure from what alverson has done that's but it's extremely bleak and extremely i would say boring and i really did not like it much and i like i don't even want to go into too much because i'm like i don't have much to say about it it's, it's okay with what they're trying to do like jeff goldblum stars as uh, this doctor who lobotomizes people like I think it's set in the 1950s to mess with their brain. And it's just, it's like, I, it's, it's very stylistic and artsy, you know, it's the kind of thing that of course plays at festivals because of how artsy it is, but it didn't really impress me in any way. I, even by the time it gets to the end, which is this payoff moment, it just was like, eh, okay. Yeah. Same here. Although I will give credit credit to, because I felt when I walked out of it and posted my initial reaction, it was a bit too harsh in it, but I have to give credit to firstly the cast and uh, just the general craftsmanship, the cinematography, the the score, the, the sound again, done really, really well. It's just a shame that the story and the script, I just couldn't get into it really because yeah. even though that, okay, compare, because when you mention Alvison's previous films, like, okay, uh, I haven't seen them, but this reminds me a bit kind of that dark, yet darkly funny, but you're dealing with really heavy stuff. Reminds me a bit of, again, Lanthimos, Sacred Deer yeah. last year. Yeah. A bit of that. So going in, I was expecting a bit more of that, but then here it was just plainly... Someone mentioned this to me lit on Twitter, literally as I was walking into the screening, that Alvison's films are very kind of miserablest, and that's kind of a good word to describe this and <laughs> Perfect, uh, actually. Uh, and uh, again it's a shame because otherwise you know the cast okay Tasha Sheridan's decent but you know Goldblum uh, Goldblum is makes uh, tr tries to do as much as he can with a with a role and you know he's right. great in it and there's also a guy closer to the end uh, that everyone's been raving about in reviews De Denis Lavant uh, yeah, fr French fr actor, yeah. Yeah, fr yeah, French actor. I mean, just, I, I mean, you, you can tell that about the effort that went into that, but I'm not, it did, it just didn't connect. It really didn't yeah. connect. But it's just, I will give credit to the actual craftsmanship of the film and Goldblum. Goldblum yeah, and Hannah sure. Gross, yeah. And what at least Lavon tried to do there, I will give credit to that. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think there's some, some, it's not like a horrible film. It just didn't connect with me or you or, or, or whatever. And I, and I appreciate what he's, I think it was shot in like a four by three aspect ratio. Yeah. Four by three, four um, by three. Yeah. 
but yeah, I don't know. It's it's and it's really it's like I, I don't have much more to say, but I was so like taken out of it, and I, you know, I I don't. <laughs> That's all. I'm glad I'm I'm glad you could see it, and it, it's the kind of thing where it's like when you're at a festival, you have a chance to see it, you see it, and you hope for the best. And this one just didn't really hit with us. I guess that's the good thing about the whole uh, embargo thing because we didn't really know much about the reactions going into mm. Mountain to a certain extent. We didn't, so and we only yeah. kind of ha- so in in that sense, that's why it's kind of good that you know when you have public screenings like this, you know I couldn't even with Trader Track get a press pass to Venice. While, for example, for LFF, I could, uh, that basically, you know, I guess I'm still going a bit fresh into this. But again, yeah. it's a shame that this kind of worked out the way it did. But thankfully, uh, kind of the double punch of Roma and uh, the favorite proved to be a bit of a palate cleanser for this. Um, okay, so we're going to do it because we have plenty to say is the, the, the real winner. And honestly, it's, I think at this point it's still my favorite film of the festival or one of my very favorite films of the festival is uh, Damien Chazelle's First Man. Um, and you are also a huge Chazelle fan as far as I know. Um, and I'm a huge Damien Chazelle fan. I interviewed him for La La Land um, and ever since Whiplash, which he, he's, he did a film before, Guy and um, Madeline on a park bench. Yeah, watch that. Just uh, literally on the train. That day, on the train from Verona that day, I watched that. Uh, okay. It's, it, he's, he's, he's one of those people who, like, you know, when someone wins the Best Director Oscar, especially very young, it kind of messes with them. Like, they can either, you know, let it get to their heads and screw with them. But I think, you know, I, I, say I was worried about that, but I was um, happy to see him win for La La Land because I love the film. And I think that's, you know, when he announced First Man and that was what he was doing next, I'm, I'm even more excited because I... It's it's not another musical, you know, or music based film like his past three, and it's it's some different. And he still gives us something, you know, really uniquely Chazelle. Um, so that's my introduction. <laughs> what what are you going first on this? Because I wanna I wanna hear your take. And we'll continue well, firstly, I was I was excited about this because obviously. Space and I'm a sucker for space films like you know, <laughs> yeah, Apo- uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Apollo 13, uh, so stuff like Apollo 13, stuff like the the right stuff. <laughs> and um, when Chazelle was tackling this, not only that, but also that he was tackling it in a very Nolan esque okay, let's go off for IMAX on this. He filmed the moon, the actual uh, the third act, the whole moon landing it, with IMAX cameras. The fact that you know, he is pl- Chazelle is playing on that sort of scale. And then you've got Ryan Gosling, you've kind of, he's bringing back all these people that he's worked with on, you know, La La Land and trying to apply what he's done there to a different story, different tone. That, this, it's the combination of, th- of these things that, you know, became my most anticipated film of the year really quickly. And personally, for me, it really lived up to the hype. And uh, just what you mentioned about Chazelle winning Best Director, this... If anything, after winning Best Director, I feel like Giselle has tried to, you know, grow up as a filmmaker with this film. <laughs> but it, okay. it, it, it's it's way more mature, um, uh, mature in the sense of, okay, if, La- if he didn't win for La Land last year, he would have definitely won it for this film, if that makes sense. Oh, wow. It's, That's it, a it's big def- claim, but I understand what you mean. <laughs> so, I... Uh, so... <sighs> I it's just I had so, so much so many things to say about this and uh, I 
it's gonna be inter- hard to try and not get into spoilers, so I'll try my best not to get into spoilers because again, it's well, out all the way in October. Well, and yeah, I'm here gonna... we are. We've seen it in Venice, but yeah, I loved you know, it. I loved it. We know they land on the moon. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. 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 One thing: the flag. The flag thing. Yeah. A... Because explaining that would be a spoiler. Explaining why they haven't done it. And why, if they had the moment where Armstrong plants the flag on the moon, wouldn't work here, would be a spoiler. So, well, other than I, the I, fact that, I'll only say that other than the fact that this is a film about human beings accomplishing something major. Not yeah, that's what she's, yeah, that's what Giselle, yeah, that's what Giselle said, that's what, Rick, uh, that's what Rick and Mark Armstrong, uh, Armstrong's real life son said when that whole controversy blew up. So yeah, it was in the very sense, and that's the thing I loved about First Man, is that it's literally 50-50, a great, okay, character study of Neil, kind of uh, focusing on Neil the man, and also an incredibly engaging space movie, a traditional space movie. Yeah. I mean, fo- and focusing on, you know, NASA and the Gemini, uh, Gemini and the Apollo programs, and of course the whole Apollo 11 mission. The thing I love about it is uh, the, the way that it is. It starts in 1961, so it has an eight-year time span, and it, it's not—it's not only the Apollo missions, which is like I remember when I first read about it. I was like, okay, it's going to be solely the Apollo 11 mission or solely the Apollo missions, but it's not. It's all the Gemini missions, and it's all—and it's also this idea where it's setting up the stakes, like it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's reminding us that there's humanness and there's people's lives, that there's that there's more than just the space race against Russia, that it's really this, this driving nature. And, it's, and it is also what fascinated me going into it is this idea that we all know Neil Armstrong is a very quiet, humble man. Like he's, he's barely come out in public ever since landing on the moon. He passed away in, I think, 2012. But he's, he's really done much. Buzz Aldrin, the second guy on the moon, is the guy who's been like talking at a thousand conventions and always appearing in things. And they kind of, they, um, I don't say mock him, but they riff on him a bit in the film as the like, goofy outspoken dude whereas neil armstrong is the more humble reserved quiet guy and i want to see how chazelle was going to give us that story and I, and I do love ryan gosling's performance because he does that so beautifully with how much you feel within him without him having to say something and i think that's what i what i admired so much about what what chazelle was trying to sell us here was that it's not this talking but what it's what's within this man's mind and what drives him and he's so precise he's so specific he's you know it shows him surviving a couple of things because that's what makes him the person who is uh qualified enough to actually get on the apollo mission and lead the mission you know he so you're learning about him but you're also and and i know chazelle said this but you're also learning about his home life you're learning about how like he's kind of disconnected from his kids like it, it was a little bit sad at times where he like just didn't have real conversations with his children and, and it's not to say he's not a terrible father. It's just that that's who he is. Um, and part of that is also that's how he was able to, to help them get there. Was that He was so successful in everything he did. And there were a lot of these scenes where they were showing him, like, talking. He'd be like, we're going to succeed or we need to succeed. It's about success. It's, that's, that was all that was on his mind. It wasn't the historic, oh, we're going to land on the moon. It was, I have a mission and I'm going to succeed at this mission and we're going to succeed at this mission and bring everyone home safe. And I think it's also worth mentioning that it's uh, definitely certainly a lot darker the, the film itself in terms of tone a, lo- a lot darker than you would expect such a film to be it's not like Apollo 13 
that's uh, or even the right stuff that's you know a bit more upbeat but no it's a little dark i think interestingly enough universal published an updated synopsis of the film just days before the venice premiere and then that when that new trailer came out describing mm-hmm. it as a film about success through tragedy yeah and that really kind of encapsulates the theme of the film because you know there are so many people who we know this from real life who end up you know the the cost of you know getting a man, a man to the moon, getting Armstrong to the moon. All the people who ended up uh, dying as a result of these uh, of these missions. The scene that we see with Apollo One burning up, what yeah. we uh, what we see, you know, Neil and Dave Scott coming this close to, to death during the Gemini Eight mission, which is an incredible sequence there was this um, IMAX preview that played in front of Mission Impossible in America that was the very start of that scene where Neil and Dave get into the rock into the rocket and then it takes off and you Uh-oh. only see just from within the cockpit if you thought that was intense then just for that's for this listening if you thought that was intense wait till you see that full sequence because yeah. it gives everyone apart from maybe Quaron his stuff in gravity it get. The space sequences in First Man give everyone, you know, Nolan, Howard, Philip Kaufman's the right yeah. stuff. Yeah. Give, they, he gives all of these uh, run for their money. It's in, the space stuff here is incredible. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk to you about. I would say, uh, jumping ahead because we have no idea what else is going to come out this year in terms of technical achievement, but it, I could see this being best sound editing easily in terms of just, you know, hearing every bolt rattle in, in the intensity of of being in those those um, ships, the, the, the craft, or whatever you want to call them, the Gemini and the Apollo craft. And that that um, that uh, all of them was basically from the perspective of Neil Armstrong. So it's not like you're seeing, you know, looking out at the ship as it launches. There's a couple of those shots in there, but it's all meant to be like you're sitting in there watching out the tiny window, feeling what it's like to launch. And that's always something that fascinated me anyway before this movie was even made was like, what it would be like to actually sit there. It's, it's insane. It's freaky as hell. It's claustrophobic. And, and Chazelle brings that. Back. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And of, of course, Senator Roman, the sound design on this is so important to the experience. It's just like, it's part of what causes your nerves and your heartbeat to go up because you're just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, is this thing going to fall apart? Like, you can hear the engines, you can hear the atmosphere pressing on it, you can hear everything. And it's freaky. And, and, and I mean, visually, I can't wait to see it in IMAX. And I in the same way because the, the, I guess it's just the moon sequence, but I don't know what else there is. But just just to yeah, it's, I, th- I believe it's just meant to be the uh, uh, the whole moon sequence. But yeah, I yeah, which was fantastic as well. I mean, the not to say too much, but that score, that yeah. approach when you have a landing and then just the still serenity when he walks out, it's. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait to see it in IMAX. But I'm going to be jealous of you, you know, because you'll probably see it in Berlin, I figure. Because it just... I just heard this morning on very good authority that Universal won't be making any 70mm prints of the film. Ah, okay. But at least least they'll be putting it out digitally in IMAX. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, okay, you're fine because laser and the IMAX in Berlin, which is, you know, traditional... 70 yeah. mil IMAX. The, nice the laser, yeah, the laser system can do it, but that means us here in London are screwed because, uh, yeah, the BFI here, it doesn't have laser. It has the kind of 2K Xenon, which 
and the laser stuff is, is and the laser theater here is because it is it's not you know a traditional IMAX that you know you'd go to see a Nolan film at and that decision from Universal to not have those prints although they may change their tune on this you know this time next month but at the moment no prints not even in America that's <laughs> incredibly unfortunate because yeah that'll be the first film shot on IMAX cameras to have to actually you know embiggen to um to have the aspect ratio expand to uh, to full 70 mil IMAX that won't have print made so you know when you shoot on that format and then not put out prints in that format what are you doing so I'm just really pissed about that to be honest I I was ready to buy tickets tickets went on sale this morning and then I find that and then they announced that oh yeah it's going to be digital and then I email a couple of people just like what's going on here and just like yeah they won't be any prints worldwide I'm just like oh shit <laughs> so thank god um, I saw it in Venice already but yeah well there's actually one of the other things I wanted to talk about visually is that this this film in this so it plays at a film festival right and it's, that means it's not you know a, a, um, a Michael Bay-esque movie in that it's you know these giant CGI sequences and so what, what also really impressed me about it was that it's it is the intimate point of view of Neil Armstrong, but that Chazelle is so talented in his craft and so so consciously aware of what he's doing that the editing is beautiful in that he gives us a little bit of both. It's not a Hollywood movie in that there's these big, beautiful shots of launching. And of course, you know, space nerds like me and you have seen, you know, every actual real footage of the Apollo launches, but that he gives us a little bit of everything. So one of my favorite shots is during the Apollo 11 launch, all of it's internal, you know, there's a couple of the, the shots from the tower as it's taking off. But then at the end of that, he cuts to this full, wide, full shot of like, and it must have been made specifically for the film, but a full, wide shot of like, you know, a little bit of the whole Florida region where it's taking off from. You get to see for that moment, for like two seconds, you get to see it, you know, lifting off with the, with the, the, the big smoke um, dream behind it and everything. And it's just this like beautiful wide shot that I wasn't expecting. And it's just there for two seconds. And you get that feeling, and then it cuts back to the intimacy. And I love that Chazelle is smart to include both. Like, not to be like, oh, okay, this is a pure intimate point of view film. We're only going to show it that way. We're never going to cut to a wide shot. Nor is he like, okay, we're going to do only wide shots and only full shots and that full, you know, epic experience. Like, he gives you a little bit of both. Because I think he's, he's such a talented filmmaker at the experience of cinema beyond just the visual and the, the storytelling. He understands all of it. That's what I love about him. That's why I think he's one of my favorite filmmakers is he's, he's a cinema nerd. He's a true, like, he's a cinema nerd. And not only did he love the classic, you know, cinema that is that defined everything that we see today, but he's also like a, a cinema nerd is in this theater experience and the, the experience of actually watching it and what he knows and how it makes you feel. Yeah, because the thing about the space sequences is that they, as intimate as they are, especially the Gemini 8 stuff that rarely ever leaves the cockpit, it does yeah. not, you still have and you still feel the majesty of it all. Yeah. When you have, you know, that slow reveal when the sun's, or, or when the sun's light's finally shining upon Earth, so when, you know, Neil and Dave just pause the Gemini craft for a second and just look out, yeah. completely pitch black, and then the Earth starts lighting up this slowly, slowly, slowly. Yeah. And then when you have a similar reveal of the moon closer to the end, and when you have that, I mentioned this in my review, when you have that big, you know, no doubt this is an homage to 2001, that docking sequence. 
<laughs> it yeah. does not again it does the film does not skimp on the majesty of it all when you see it on a on a huge screen like IMAX it's gonna blow people away I think again yeah. like I said this runs circles apart around almost everyone apart from Quaron I think yeah and that's who tried to tackle only... space on the big screen I, I, I was not expecting the Chazelle to be this good at that I don't know why maybe it's just because we haven't seen it from him yet and I wouldn't have and I would have thought of him more as like uh, uh, no pun intended, but a down-to-earth director, <laughs> you know. But like, but but to to know that he can pull that off as well, and to like literally, as you said, challenge these guys on the on the visual experience and the the the, the visceral experience of space travel is is awesome. And it, it would make me say, okay, Chazelle make more sci-fi, but this is such a specific story for him that he wanted to tell that i don't need you know I, I i'm not he can do whatever he wants next and i'm going to be excited for it but it but it's not like i'm i'm saying you better do more sci-fi even though i yeah, yeah i think i i think this kind of scratched my yeah it, this definitely scratched my you know Shazelda's sci-fi itch because yeah, like even, I, though yeah, not, even though it's not sci-fi it's you, 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 as you get that same sort of experience yeah you get a similar sort of experience that you, yeah. that you would get that sort of spectacle really we have we have to watch out because there's going to be someone who's like, "What do you mean the moon landing was fake? Of course it was sci-fi." <laughs> but the, but that's you know if I don't think this film is proof of anything, but it's it's clearly an example as well to show that like, look, the moon landing was an impossible feat that we pulled off through determination, through precision, you know, through people, human beings, and, and technical expertise into how to do it. And he doesn't he doesn't spend time on like that once they lift off. He doesn't spend time like on Apollo 13, the movie, um, explaining, you know, the three days it takes to get to the moon and all the details and blah, 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 blah. It's not that kind of movie, but it is the kind of movie where you feel that it's it, it is an amazing, amazing accomplishment that we were able to pull this off. And that it was, you know, still something we've ever never matched. You know, we sent a couple more Apollo missions, but have never been to the moon again, you know, and still haven't been to Mars aside from rovers. So it's like, you know. That's just to put those uh, naysayers to bed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really actually looking forward to seeing how you know the space community in general reacts to this film because yeah. I those and I should really recommend this podcast episode to anyone who's listening who's really excited for First Man. There was a great interview um, on this podcast called Go Flight, which is uh, which is run by a guy called Rick Houston. He did this interview with James Hansen, who is the uh, Neil Armstrong's biographer, he wrote the book First Man, and he's a co-producer on the film. And they had this f- fantastic one-hour conversation about actually the whole process of how the film was made, how initially it was pitched to Clint Eastwood, and how he That's turned down the project after, after he, and then after he decided to not do the project after a shitty golf game with Neil, and <laughs> basically, oh, wow. and then basically how it ended up at Universal, and then the whole process of okay, how they made the film, and you know the the attention to detail that you know Josh Singer had, and uh, the writer who wrote Spotlight, and you know James Hansen, the biographer, had, had put into this film because they worked together really closely. It it feels like, you know, from experience perspective, I saw it for the first time, yet it pays off, it feels kind of authentic. And, um, and that's why I'm really forward to seeing it again, as well as to try and dig 
and see what others say about okay how much it gets right in terms of the details in terms of how genuine genuine it all is and also they've got this really interesting thing coming out in october and tied into the film's release they're releasing the screenplay but with annotations from both singer and hansen where they divert where they explain whenever they diverge from reality from oh, you know wow. the historical record already happened so yeah they will explain the flag why there isn't the flag planting they will explain the whole thing you know there's a there's a sequence with that protest and the song whitey's on the moon apparently that song wasn't actually done until after the moon landing but here it oh, is wow. included here why you know chazelle and singer changed some things for dramatic license Right. Well, so the way, just kind of breaking down the way that they managed to balance historical and technical authenticity yeah. with telling cool, a good man. story. But from the very, from, at the very least, from a storytelling perspective and from experience of, you know, casual movie go, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I really loved it. Um, and this reminds me, one more thing I want to mention is that we, and I, I messaged this to you after I saw it and you saw it, was that there were a couple of shots that they didn't, make the cut and and They're i don't want to get into the, the scenes you know, yeah. the, why does it make stuff cut you know because that's this happens all the time star wars is a big big thing about it but the one shot that i'm actually genuinely sad about is the one that because you you also made a big deal when it showed up in the trailer is the shot of him looking out of the window at the launch in the subjective position of the launch reflecting on the window seeing ryan gosling's face because that's such a beautiful shot and you know what they're promoting it too it's like one of the official deals the studio has released and it's like I know this happens all the time with movies that it they cut it does stuff happen all the time, yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, but I'm like that shot is so good. Why did you cut it? Like I, I would literally ask Giselle about it. But it's just, it's like one of my saddest little. Why did you have to cut that shot? If you speak to today? Giselle at Toronto, ask him about IMAX prints, <laughs> please, 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 please. Okay. I don't think I will, but I will. I wish I could. <laughs> I spoke to him for La La Land, so I kind of want to give him a break because he's got a. There's gonna be a million people who want to talk to him, and then, but um. Yeah, that's that's my one thing. Is there anything yeah, else you want to say about? Yeah, Christmas? because uh, also the yeah, deleted scenes. Just wanted to check because I asked you this, but you didn't uh, on when we were talking on Twitter, but you didn't reply. Was Uh-oh. in the in the version that you saw, well, when you saw it at the press screening this morning, was the scene with uh, the Armstrong's house on fire included or not? No, no, there wasn't because there was a review out of Telluride that said the scene was included. But you didn't see it, did you? No, I didn't see it at my screening either. So when I saw yeah, that but... review, I was just like, what the hell? It was apparently in, like, in the last 40 minutes, there was that sh- <laughs> that you know scene like mentioned, oh yeah, last 40 minutes, starting from you know when Armstrong's house catches fire to the final Apollo 11 mission. I was just like, what? That scene wasn't in the film. Did it tell you right to get a different cut? No, that can't be. You know, I don't know anything about this review. I don't know who the reviewer is or anything. But there have been a couple... I'm only going to say this because I, I don't want to throw the person on us without knowing anything about the situation. But there have been a couple of times where reviews have been written that are based on nonsense or come up with stuff like this. And the filmmakers have literally called the, the critic and been like, dude, this isn't in the movie. How did you do this? Like, there was there was a famous one where, like, some famous New York critic like wrote about a film that he he like finished and it was like based on some trailer footage that the, the person had seen and that's why the filmmaker was like oh this was in the trailer no seriously that's why the filmmaker was like yeah that shot was in the trailer but it was never in the finished cut and they got called out on this so i don't Given know who, who it was. is I, w- I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> i'll yeah, just leave it at that I'll, I'll leave it at that for now i'll tell you a lot i'll tell you afterwards <laughs> okay 
but I just mean it, it is that possible confusion of like that's why when I when the, the shot of the window I had to ask you I'm like that wasn't in your you know you didn't see that because because it's one of those things you see the me and you know it's a thousand shots and it ends and I'm like I, and I'm like well we didn't see that didn't we maybe missed it but I I don't think it was in there. could be that kind of thing like a confusion but I, I'm pretty sure those two shots are not in the finished film. Um, okay, so is there anything else you want to say about First Man, or, or should we, should we man, wrap up? Just bring on another screen. I want to see it again, and bring on those prints. <laughs> yeah. Please, just get those prints. Otherwise, I'm going to have to add in the, the options for UK people to see it kind of properly would be flying off to Berlin, Brussels, or, you know, France, Montpellier, because they've got the big IMAXs with laser that are, oh, you know, science yeah. museum type ones. But yeah, I want to see it again. I can't wait to see it again. I was tempted to actually go again on Thursday because you probably know this, but on the mainland, in the main city, they do um, screenings of the in-competition films the next oh, day okay. as well for those that mm. can't get to the Lido and they were screening yeah, First yeah. Man there and it was at the same time as The Mountain. So oh, okay. I was tempted to go again. But kind of, I was hoping that, you know, see it once and then by the time I get to see it in, you know, full IMAX, uh, it's not, it, it, it would have faded from memory a bit. So it feels, still feels like a fresh experience seeing it again. But yeah, I can't wait. I loved it. It lived up to my hype personally. And that's yeah. kind of the main thing because I've been looking forward to this film so much. Yeah, me too. I agree. It lived up to my hype too, which is, uh, yeah, that's, and that's a, a tough thing for Chazelle because I'm so hyped for his films, but it's. Okay, well, I, I have to wrap up because I have to go to another screening soon. But I guess the last thing I want to talk about, and you haven't seen it yet, so I don't want to mention it too much, is Suspiria. Because it's yeah, kind of oh my god, that was killing me. That was killing me. Like, oh my yeah. god, I left, and then Suspiria screen. I wish you could have seen it, but you'll be in London at the film festival, Yeah, right? it's going to be in London, yeah. Okay. I the, was, only the only other festival day. appearance. That's the interesting thing. It's not doing TIFF. It's not doing anything else apart from Venice and London. Well, really it's a very, choice. it's a very crazy, weird film, and the biggest reference that people have made it, it, it accurate is that it's compared to Mother, not in a thematic narrative sense, but in a sense of it gets crazy as shit, and then you're going to either love it or hate it, and you're just gonna, it's just gonna either you know upset you, and you're gonna hate that's exactly it. That's exactly what I heard. Yeah, gonna, basically, yeah, this Mother. That's what I heard. And, and that's that's what I, I actually really loved it. I think it's a brilliant film that it is really layered and there's so much going on to it. And it is crazy and it is different than the original. That's another discussion. That it's like it's not meant to be the original. It's meant to be something completely different from the original. And it's just it's just nuts. And it's the kind of film that I need to see three more times to really get into it and then to like analyze it for a year, you know, to be like, well, what does this mean? And what is and, you know, not only what does this mean, but what is Luca trying to say? What is uh, the director, Luca Guadagnino, like, what is he trying to say? Like, what is he trying to, you know, what are the political themes beyond the horror side of it? Like, what is all this going on? Because he, he works that in. And again, some of the reviews I've written don't like that, like the political stuff. But also, I'm fascinated that it's even in there, you know, and that he, that he tried to work that in. So it's good. It's almost like I should get you on once you've seen it, everyone else has seen it when it opens for like a full on, you know, discussion about it because it's so, so much going on in it and so much to like, be like, Oh my God, I can't believe this happens. It's just crazy. It's crazy. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. What else have you seen uh, between, you know, when I le left and today? So you mm. mentioned Star is Born. Yeah. A Star is Born, which I liked. Um, I saw Buster Scruggs, which I loved. 
Um, I'm trying to think. Of, oh, uh, I most recently saw the Sisters Brothers, which is the Jacques Yeah, Dardier I think I've heard one. about that. Um, it's like a western with John C. Riley and um, uh, Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, and it's it's good. Um, the audience here went nuts for it. It's like the biggest cheer I've heard at any press screening so far. And uh, it, it's interesting because it's this like dark comedy, like awkward comedy western. Like the comedy is not really there, but it is. And that was a bit weird to me, kind of like um, uh, Three Billboards last year. I, I enjoyed it, but the comedy was a bit awkward to me at times. Um, and it, the more I think about it, the more I like it because it is so uh, uh, different than most Westerns in the what it tries. But I, but in terms of Westerns, I prefer the Coen Brothers, The Ballad of Buster, way more. It's, it's six different stories. It's an anthology film, but so beautifully done in the Coen Brothers' typical intelligent way, and I like that one more. How um, does it? F- I'm just curious about Buster Scruggs. Actually, I was going to mention yeah. about Buster Scruggs. Firstly, I weirdly enough saw a promo of it on Annapurna's um, Instagram because I know they produced it. Their TV division originally produced it when it was a TV series, and I'm thinking if they're saying if they're putting out stuff on their Instagram saying in theaters November, like are Netflix partnering with them. To release it in the US, um, uh, so that that was just, just a brief thought I had. By no, what, it was, it was always was gonna... a Netflix. It was a it was a Netflix Annapurna. Yeah, yeah, Netflix yeah. I know, but I'm yeah, I know that. But I'm just. But I was gonna ask you, does it feel like a cut down TV show when you watch it? Because... <laughs> yeah, you're you're not the only one to ask me this. Um, yes and no. It, like, uh, of course, you're watching six anthology pieces and, and, you know, at first I'm thinking, well, these could have easily been full, you know, a full 60 minute. Episode yeah, I'm sure, yeah. So it's kind of th- think about I'm just trying to think what references I have for this, you know, stuff like Paris Je Thème, I th- I think that was kind of a similar in the way that, OK, six different stories. Yes, but also like the other thing is that some of them are, you know, obviously some of them are longer than others. And when you're watching them and then you see like a 10 minute anthology piece, like one of these sequences, you're like, you know, this, this, and maybe this is what happened with the Coen Brothers. Maybe this is why they turned it into a film is that you're like, well, this didn't really need to be 60 minutes. Like you could have easily padded it into it. You could have written the characters out. You could have turned it into a 60 minute episode, but you know what? It works just as well. 10 minutes long. It works great. I wasn't it, sure it, it was even better. meant to be a full 60 minute thing. I believe it was, from what I've read up on on this, it was supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, because of comedy episodes in the US are 30 minutes long, it was just supposed to be 30 minutes. Yeah, but nonetheless, like like, it, like one of them is a 10-minute thing, and you're like, you know, that's what I thought. I was like, you could have turned this into 30 minutes or whatever, but they didn't need to. And I think, I bet that's what happened is the, the cones were like, you know what, actually these will work better, more streamlined. Like some of them, one of them was about 30 minutes long. Um, it's the, it's the, uh, I think it's the fourth or fifth one with, um, uh, uh, Zoe Kazan and it's like about a wagon train, uh, going to Oregon and she's in the wagon train and there's the, there's this interesting story to it. I don't want to say anything more than that, but that one, uh, is a good 20 to 30 minute chunk and it needs that. It needs to play out that way. I, I really, really love Buster Scruggs. I want to defend it seriously a lot and, like when it comes out, I want to get into a discussion with people about it because it's just so much. There's so much to it, and there's so much like intelligent commentary within it. Like, yeah, it's a wagon train set in the American West, but there's actually like a, a modern theme to it, which is, of course, but time in a really smart way. I love how they presented it. Um, more than the Sister Brothers, that's what I'm saying. Like more than the Sisters Brothers, which is just a good Western film. This is this is like great commentary within Western 
settings and within other comedic settings within the within Buster Scruggs. It's gonna be it's gonna be discussed. I don't think it's gonna make a huge impact because it's you know it's a Netflix release and blah blah blah. And you know I think people always judge Coens on this hardcore scale because they're so prolific with what like 20 films now that, that it's just like if it's not the Coen brothers best it's not the best but like i really loved it i i it's probably my favorite since inside lou and davis so um yeah i'm curious to hear what everyone else has to think when it when it comes out but yeah like i said i have to get wrapped up because i have to go to another screening in an hour or so but um thanks for joining me anton i'm glad we could chat thanks about for having this. me uh as a as a wrap-up where do people find you as always you're the trailer track master but but give everyone a recap yeah yeah it's um at trailer track and uh at anto volk that's my main twitter handle and you run the awesome trailer track website which still goes strong and keeps me updated on what i need to know every week about trailers <laughs> so thank you for always doing that um no worries no worries and yeah, man, I look forward to chatting with you more about everything so uh thanks for joining me and i'm glad you had a good time in venice well, thank you, and hope you have a great rest of the festival as well. Thanks, man, and uh, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you again soon.